Matthew's Gospel employs more than half of its Old Testament citations within the Gospel's prologue, chapters 1 through 4. Although these texts lead Matthew's story, many scholars have long assumed that the scriptural citations have nothing to do with their original Old Testament context. Was Matthew a bumbling hermeneutist? Not so, says Nicholas Piotrowski. In his book, Matthew's New David at the End of Exile, Nicholas investigates Matthew's Old Testament quotations and finds that they provide reading and worldview orientation for the Gospel's audience. The seven prologue quotations all emerge from Old Testament contexts concerned with David or the end of the exile, or both, a dual theme that provides an interpretive guide for the entire narrative of Matthew's Gospel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Nicholas G. Piotrowski received his Ph.D. from Wheaton College in 2013. He's Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Crossroads Bible College and Academic Dean at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. Nicholas is co-founder and main speaker for the Fox Valley Theological Society and is also published with Tyndale Bulletin and Bulletin for Biblical Research. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very pleased to talk with you today. Nicholas, tell us about yourself and how you came to write a book on Matthew's Gospel. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I was teaching at a Christian high school in Maryland, just north of D.C., uh, teaching a number of topics, uh, but particularly one class was a class on hermeneutics and biblical theology to juniors and seniors. And um, we were studying uh, Jeremiah, and then we moved on to study Uh, Matthew. I don't remember why the books were in that order, uh, but they were. And as we were studying Matthew, it occurred to me that uh, it seems that in uh, Matthew's perspective, the exile in some sense has not ended. Uh, And we know from Matthew 2 that we are already supposed to think of Jeremiah because of the quotation of Jeremiah there. So putting those two together uh, just providentially got me thinking I wrote to one of my former professors at RTS Jackson, Dennis Ireland, who I was a great teacher. I looked up to him greatly. And he put me onto a chapter by N.T. Wright in New Testament and the people of God. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, wow, so there is some there is some uh, there is something here. Right. Other people have seen this kind of thing before as well. Read some other works. And uh, uh, there you go. It just got rolling in my mind. When the opportunity came along to study at, at Wheaton College to pursue a PhD, Nick Perrin was my advisor, and he, he's very much interested in that topic as well, so it was easy to settle on that as a dissertation topic. We wrangled for a while about methodology and, and what uh, particular uh, sort of scholarly avenue I would get into the topic, and uh, we decided after much laboring, that perhaps the formula quotations were the best way to broach this topic in the Gospel of Matthew, and they uh, seemed uh, in need of exploration for other reasons. And so uh, uh, seven years later, <laughs> we have the final product. And along your journey of studying the Gospel of Matthew, did you get married? Do you have children? Okay, uh, I was married beforehand. may not have happened uh, while I was working on it, so I was, I'd was i been married for uh, two years before we relocated to Wheaton. Uh, I did have two children during the process and relocated to Indianapolis. So yeah, life went on, and uh, but nonetheless, I was able to carve out the time to make this happen. Let's turn now to your book, first with the big picture in mind. Your book studies the seven Old Testament quotations found in the prologue of Matthew's Gospel. What themes do these quotations have in common 
And how do they relate to Matthew's story about Jesus? Yeah, good, thanks. So I discerned that when we explore the Old Testament context from which these quotations come, uh, they have in common either a concern with David and or the end of the exile. And as the prologue moves forward from, I, I call the prologue Matthew 1 through four seventeen. as the prologue moves forward, it seems like the attention moves from David increasingly more to the end of the exile. And uh, uh, I, I use the analogy in the book of reading the prologue uh, would be like coming to a play early and watching the stagehands set up the set. Uh, this prop here and that character there. And so you know as you watch the stage being set up uh, that those are going to be important contributors to the rest of the drama. Well, Matthew 4, 17 and following is the rest of the drama. And so paying particular attention to those Old Testament formula quotations in the first four chapters gives the reader an insight into what to expect, therefore, in the rest of the book. And what does one expect? Well, a heavy emphasis on David and the end of the exile. And so I think observing the, the, the heavy Davidic and end of exile theology in those first couple chapters, first few chapters, uh, really opens up our eyes to what's going on in the rest of Matthew, as though Matthew is broadcasting, hey, reader, pay attention, I will now tell you a Davidic end-of-exile story vis-a-vis the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now let's look at an example or two of how Matthew uses Old Testament quotations. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew's text reads, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. What is the original Old Testament context for this quote, and how does Matthew employ it for his story? Yeah, you're you're asking the right questions and in the right order. What is the original Old Testament context? I think usually we start with Matthew 1, and and I do too in my dissertation, but we kind of end there. We say, oh, Mary's the virgin, Jesus is the child. Oh, what a great miracle, and and that is some miracle for a virgin to have a child. But the Old Testament context, the concern is not so much with, Uh, the woman having the child, but rather the main character of concern in Isaiah 7 and 8 is David. In fact, Ahaz, the sitting Davidic king at the time, is referred to by his own name, Ahaz, uh, once, maybe twice. Every other time, he's referred to as, O house of David. He's referred to by that redemptive historical institution for which he is a metonymy. So think uh, 2 Samuel 7. Right, and the promise is made to the house of David. So the problem in Isaiah 7 is that these two kings from the north want to come down to Jerusalem and usurp and supplant um, Ahaz with this guy named uh, someone from the house of Tabeel. Now, who, who is the house of Tabeel? I, I don't think anybody knows. But the point is he's not the house of David. And that's the key. So an assault on Ahaz is an assault on God's very redemptive purposes through the house of David. Long story short, Isaiah 7 and 8 is therefore a testimony of how God in his providence has preserved the house of David so that he can continue his redemptive historical purposes. Chapter 9, it seems Isaiah takes that historical event and flips it into a prophetic vision of the future where David's house will be forever 
secured and not worry about these kinds of assaults. Now you move forward to Matthew, you're also moving forward 700 years or whatever, you know, hundreds of years. And, um, and the house of David, or the throne of David, I should say, has been vacant all these years. And that has created significant theological and ideological um, uh, problems for people living in the first century who believe that what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, are the word of God and the testimony of their covenant God's promises to them, right? So Matthew comes along and says, uh, uh, just as Isaiah, in Isaiah 7 and 8, the covenant Lord has preserved the house of David for his redemptive purposes, now he's resurrecting the house of David for his redemptive historical purposes. So as to say that what God did in the days of Ahaz was actually slight compared to what he's going to do now. Preserving the house of David is one thing. Resurrecting the house of David is a whole nother. So we look at Matthew 1 and 2, and a lot of Davidic themes. I mean, David is just everywhere. So while Mary is certainly important, and of course Jesus is important, the main character there is David and the promises God made to him. Why uh, they've lapsed and what we are to think about that. And what it means now that the house of David is back on the historical scene. So I think looking at the context of Isaiah 7 through 8 and paying attention to those sort of dynamics really opens up Matthew 1 uh, in in ways uh, more than we're typically used to. Thank you. To take another example, in Matthew 2, verses 5 through 6, Matthew quotes from Micah 5, which says, A ruler will come from Bethlehem. Tell us about this citation and how it functions in Matthew. Yeah, this one's, this one's great as well, because again, at face value, it looks like a pretty straightforward prophecy, right? Micah says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and lo and behold, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So there you go, you can check Jesus' birth off the prophetic checklist and, and move on. But we slow down and we move back to Micah 4 and 5, uh, really chapter 3, 4, and 5 of Micah, and uh, uh, explore there. And what we see is that Micah is not merely concerned with the location of the birth of the Messiah, but equally why Israel went into exile in the first place, the moral failures of their of the house of David uh, at the time, that the temple is destroyed, uh, and so forth. And he says something very interesting in uh, Micah 5, I believe it's verse 3 in our English Bibles, yeah, Micah 5.3 in our English Bibles, 5.2 in the Hebrew text, that this scourging of Jerusalem and disciplining of the house of David will continue until the time when this, this Bethlehem king is born. And so it seems to me that Micah is saying that the context of exile will persist until the time of this Davidic king being born in Bethlehem. And what is the context of exile? Well, that the temple will continue to be uh, decimated and you know destroyed, profaned by the Gentiles. And so therefore, the end of the exile will mean not only the resurrection of the house of David, already established in the Isaiah quote, but equally the resurrection of the temple. That for exile to truly end, a new temple must be raised that is not profaned by Gentiles, a legitimate place of worship for the people of God, and... Micah also insists that when this happens, Gentiles will also come. They will realize their idolatry, 
turn from the false gods and come and worship the one true living God through the house of David in the new temple. Now, Matthew, of course, uh, has some kind of temple theology going on. And the ironic thing is that if the son of David, again, think 2 Samuel 7, is expected to rebuild the temple, it's very ironic when you get to chapter 24 and 25, that Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, not a building, but a destruction. And so where then is the resurrection of the temple as expected by Micah at the end of the exile? And long story short, I think Jesus is saying that it will be in the community of his followers, um, which has a powerful rhetorical effect, of course, on first century Jews um, going forward. And the fact that the quotation of Micah 5 is in the context of the coming of the Magi. They, therefore, are the beginning of this, uh, I think in the book I call it the eschatological pilgrimage of the Gentiles to worship the true and living God, which, of course, climaxes with the Great Commission, where Jesus basically tells, go out now and get more Gentiles, because that's what end of exile is. It's the coming of the Gentiles into the true temple. That is helpful. Nicholas, your book not only considers the context of the various Old Testament passages and the literary context of Matthew's Gospel, but also the context of Matthew's original audience. Tell us about Matthew's audience. What was the message of Matthew's gospel for them? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I've I've noticed that uh, in some of the reviews, that doesn't get as much attention, but it's a very important part of of this book. That I'm trying to use a method that gives weight to the genre of choice that Matthew employs, a narrative— However, narrative criticism, literary criticism has been accused of divorcing its studies from its historical locatedness. And so I'm trying to bring these these back together. And so paying very careful attention to the historical context. So to answer your question, uh, it's uh, we have to imagine, which is not hard to do, but is often neglected, that there was a time when the New Testament did not exist. There was no New Testament. Right. So you have these first century Jews who for generations have been ideologically shaped. Their worldview has been shaped by what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Right. Their identity of who they are. What is the purpose of history? What's going on in the world? Who is our God? How is he for us? Why are there problems in the covenant? All these kinds of things are shaped by their understanding of Uh, the Old Testament, and of course, the events in the world surrounding them. And insofar that um, I'm exploring these exilic themes in Matthew, I'm also asking the question, are other Jews of the first century, Second Temple Judaism, so before Jesus's life, uh, also concerned with the exile? And it turns out, I think there's evidence that says that, well, I mean, long story short, is that there are a lot of different views of exile in the Second Temple period. Some said the exile was over. Other people said it continued because the diaspora was still in in effect. Diaspora Jews were still all over the world. Um, And it wasn't so much that they were in exile, but the whole nation is in exile insofar as a single Jew might be outside the promised land. They have a sense of solidarity. Uh, Whereas others looked at the temple and again saw, hey, this is not a house built by David. It's a house built by Herod. That that can't be uh, the true temple and so forth. So there are all these different interpretations of exile in the Second Temple Judaism. And the reason the exile is such a concern is because, as I tried to mention briefly earlier, it's such a, it was such a terrible 
uh, event that completely up uh, put put the whole Jewish worldview in upheaval. How in the world could our God remove us from the land, cut the house of David off, and destroy his own temple? It really gets you rethinking things. So years later, people are still wrestling with this and trying to understand themselves in light of those events. Now, here's what I conclude. That you have a bunch of different Jewish groups in the Second Temple period all vying with each other for the right to the moniker, the people of God, or Israel. How in the world does Israel continue if all these covenantal icons are lost or, or, or decimated? Temple, breaking the law, house of David, all these kinds of things. So the Pharisees have an argument. The Sadducees have an argument. Of course, the uh, people of Qumran have an argument. The Zealots have an argument. Everybody has an argument for why they are actually the continuation of Israel, either it's by law-keeping or attending to the temple or going to the desert to recreate the Exodus or whatever. Well, now you have the Matthean community, and they are shaped by these Old Testament concerns as well. But they have this extra variable, these Jesus stories that have been told for told among them for years and so they're trying to bring together their understanding of god's purposes in redemption in the old testament hebrew bible together with their understanding that jesus is the resurrected messiah matthew therefore is the result of bringing these two together in the community matthew codifies in written form that has an authoritative uh, place in the community uh, bringing together the Jesus tradition that they've heard, together with an interpretation of that Old Testament meta narrative that has been so formative for so long for them. This will be Matthew, I'm sorry, this will be Isaiah and Micah, of course, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth. Right? So, therefore, reading Matthew gives the community the self identity. Who are we in the world and what time is it? What time is it? It's the end of the exile. Why is it the end of the exile? Because the house of David has finally been re-enthroned and a new temple resurrected um, through the labors of this great Davidic Messiah. And who are we? We are the people of God. We have a claim to the moniker people of God, the true Israel, because Israel is always the people subservient to the house of David. So insofar as we have a Davidic king ruling over us, we therefore must be the continuation of the people of God. And we bring Gentiles in, therefore, we haven't mentioned this yet, bringing to a conclusion God's purposes also for Abraham. And so tying off these Davidic promises in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus also brings Abrahamic promises to fruition as well. Again, seen vis-a-vis the Magi and the believing community and the Great Commission, all of which are Gentile-focused. Since you brought up Abraham, and he appears in the opening of Matthew's Gospel and the genealogy, will you touch on that point for a minute? Yeah, right. Um, I'll, I'll take a moment to shamelessly plug another work in um, Bulletin for Biblical Research called um, After the Deportation, Observations of Matthew's Apocalyptic Genealogy. I wrote that, I think it was published in 2015, so a year before this monograph. That's actually a piece of the dissertation taken out. So there's a lengthier consideration of the of the genealogy in the dissertation, but to publish it, it was just it was just getting too long and it felt a little bit off um, 
off focus because the main focus is the formula quotations. So I took that out and put it in BBR where I look at the structure of the genealogy and long story short, I conclude that the, uh, and a lot of people have concluded things similar to this, that the, that the, the, the deportation to Babylon in verses 11 and 12 are, are serving as the historical barrier as to why promises to Abraham and David have gone unfulfilled. So by invoking Abraham and David in the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is to invoke these not just Jewish but cosmological concerns of the Old Testament insofar that both David, David is to rule over the nations, Abraham is to bless the nations, right? And so why have these promises not come to fulfillment as well as because the, the exile is this barrier that uh, the promises of God, so to speak, cannot get past. Therefore, with the birth of the son of David and the son of Abraham, Matthew is already forecasting that my story will now be a fulfillment story. I can use the word fulfillment a lot. A fulfillment story that also explains how the exile is being rolled back through the preaching of Jesus, his death and his resurrection to bring Abraham and David uh, Abrahamic and Davidic covenants to fulfillment. Um, so even before the formula quotations get going, I think Matthew is already priming the pump for us to think about these things. And so therefore, when you get to the end of Matthew in chapter 28, uh, these that, that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me is, I mean, you just pause and think about it. It's just an audacious claim. I mean, he's saying everything in heaven, <laughs> everything on earth belongs to me. And how could he make that claim? Well, because of things like Psalm 2, which is a Davidic um, psalm where the son, again, think 2 Samuel 7, the son of God is promised to rule not just Israel, but all of all of the world, uh, which would dovetail right in with Genesis 12 and all the nations will be blessed. So the teaching of the apostles, therefore, is the form of blessing that, it, that God has intended through Abraham for the world and therefore the means by which the son of David rules the nations, not by politic, not by sword, not by spear, but by his teachings on the lips of his people, which goes on uh, eschatologically on and on as uh, more people are drawn into this community who can think of themselves as the uh, end of exile Israel of God. Nicholas, are there any other projects you're working on that you can tell us about? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on a uh, hermeneutics book for IVP because the world needs one more hermeneutics book. But um, <laughs> the reason this one will be different is because I'm targeting it at undergraduates and educated laity. So it's really a beginner's level book. I think hermeneutics is so important to consider, but a lot of people don't think about how they're reading. So I'm trying to make something brief but interesting that'll get people interested in hermeneutics. Then after that, I hope to turn back to some of these sort of considerations in the way New Testament books quote Old Testament texts early in their books that then have a hermeneutical effect for the rest of the book. So I've done it with Matthew in book-length form, but in more in chapter-length forms from Mark, Luke, Acts, John, and Romans uh, to see how this sort of hermeneutical dynamic is working itself out in other places. It all sounds great and useful. Nicholas, it's been a pleasure talking biblical studies with you. It's all my pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the book. 
All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies as we've talked with Nicholas Piotrowski about his recent book, Matthew's New David at the End of Exile. Until next time.